I'm Jane Leader, and you're listening to Older Women and Friends. You know, we older women have a lot to say about love, grief, loss, and resilience. We're more comfortable speaking our truth. We've been good scouts and earned our badges, and now it's time to change the perception that the gig is just about up, when in truth, the second wave of the gig has just begun. We are the matriarchs, the women at the top of the food chain, and we've been given the precious gift of passing along the wisdom that we fought so hard for. So let's build a community of older women, women who are strong, self-fulfilled, and a hell of a lot of fun. Today, my guest is Edie Nathan, and she has some creds that are worth listing. She is a social worker, a blogger with Psychology Today, a speaker, a certified sex therapist, and yes, I can hear your brains going, and maybe we'll have her back and get to that, but we're not talking about it today because we're talking about her book titled It's Grief. The Dance of Self-Discovery Through Trauma and Loss. Edie, welcome. Oh, it's so good to be here, Jane. I would like you to begin by describing your childhood. You know, childhoods uh, show up in many different ways, right? And there's the childhood that we really had. There's the childhood we remember. And then there's the childhood that continues to evolve as we grow. So the childhood I had was filled with being bullied and being overweight and being an outlier. And yet the childhood, that childhood has informed how I dance with and integrate having been bullied, having been overweight, having been sexually abused into my craft into the way I help people and myself move through and partner with grief. So I'm assuming then that it was the trauma, the loss of what you just described as a young person that has, as you said, informed your work and was the basis for writing this book. You know, there are a lot of tip-offs that informed this book. And I think informed the grief conversation. It really wasn't until the loss of my first love, Paul, when I was 27 years old, uh, that got me to thinking about a grief, my own grief, and that there was really a 27, there was nowhere to turn. There was no one to talk to. The people who I thought would be supportive just continued to say, you're young and you'll find somebody else. And they're really any kind of support group around it just had people who had been married for long periods of time. And so they just saw me as young and having my whole life in front of me. So I realized that what I was going to do with my life had to kind of be shut down and repackaged because I was going to be going into the corporate world and talking about drug abuse and talking about how best to have conversations in the dilemmas of the corporate workforce. That all got put into a box to be looked at at another point. 
And I began to really look at grief and loss and the different roles that we play and that we must, that must emerge as a result of that loss. And knowing this on a personal level, and of course, doing a lot of reading, I know that one loss tends to bring up a pool of all losses that preceded it. And particularly if we haven't worked through it, if we hadn't done the dance, then as you explain, uh, we are in even worse shape than if that had not occurred. Absolutely. It's what I failed to say and that you so carefully put together is that it was that loss that then aroused the things that I may have put away and packaged very neatly that could no longer be denied. You write about the universality, let me do that again, the universality, here we go, of the conversation about loss and trauma is something that we are all aware of. And I think I mentioned this to you earlier, but in reading This Chair Rocks by Ashton Applewhite, she said, we'll lose people, we're known all our lives, and some part of our bodies will fall apart. And I can certainly attest to that as a 77-year-old, but I think you're both saying exactly the same thing. And uh, I wondered if you could talk about that. I mean, what does it matter that all of us are going to experience loss and or trauma in our lives? So what does it matter? Is it a sense that we have friends and or family that can rally behind us? Because you do write about the importance of a support system, friends and family. So I'm wondering if that dovetails a little bit into what we're talking about. It, it does. Part of healing, and when I use the term healing, I'm not talking about you're going to get over it and we're going to wipe the slate clean because this is not about forgetting. It's about learning how to remember more peacefully. It's it's not about, is this going to be over? Probably not. You know, do I still think about Paul? Is Paul part of what I do? Absolutely. Do I think about my parents? Absolutely. If I didn't, it would be like I was wiping wiping them out. And that's not the kind of healing I'm talking about. And how does healing happen? And how does grief happen? I mean, grief is not just about the loss of a loved one. It's about the losses that we incur in life. So, that could be the loss of a job. I call these the little G's and then the big G's. And the little G's are the loss of a job. Could even be a bad hair day, to be honest <laughs> with you. And why? Because, and I even say this in my book, you know, my mom was loving, but could also sometimes not be so loving. And I wouldn't pose for a picture when I was uh, young. And she hated that my, she couldn't comb my hair. And so she took me to the hairstylist and had my hair cut off. And so for me, and I think for other people whose hair may have played into some trauma, it's grief. Yet it's a little G. It's not a big G. And the, the big Gs are, could be loss of a home, loss of freedoms because you're ill, could be um, menopause. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that the grief response comes in. And 
the yearning for what was lost is what we're really talking about. So what then is the dance in reading? Uh, the book? dance, the yeah, dance. Is um, it, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but it seems like we have to face, as you've said, uh, the loss and the trauma head on, that we can't run for it, from it, uh, that we can't stuff it somewhere because, as you said, it's going to rear its ugly head at some other time in the future. So can you tell us what you meant by dancing through trauma and loss? So the dance of trauma, the, you know, learning how to dance with it really means, like in any dance, unless you're doing a freestyle on your own solo, you're partnering. And, and what I'm really talking about is partnering with what comes up rather than ignoring it. Partnering with the numbness, partnering with the anxiety, partnering with the anger, partnering with the yearning. Because when we partner with it, it means we acknowledge it. When we don't acknowledge it, and we think that if we just stuff it down, guess what happens, Jane? We have issues with our guts, our gut, our bellies. We have issues in our relationships. We have issues with our sleep. But when we start to face it and dance with it and say, okay, I see you. I can't push you away. So let's walk together. I love that. The structure of your book is fascinating because it's filled with self-assessment exercises, with tools that people can use to actually dance uh, with their loss and trauma. What did you feel that you were going to accomplish? For me, for example, as a reader, why do I need to go through all these exercises? Why do I need to understand if I'm an introvert or an extrovert? Why do I need to under why do I need to keep a journal for God's sakes? So why? Oh, you've mentioned so many different paths that that we can take here. So let me let me go to the journaling piece because science what, what we're learning in terms of science is that when brain science, when we take what's going on inside of us and we have a place to put those feelings, to write them down, and I'm not just talking about typing them into your phone. I'm not just talking about writing on the computer. I'm actually talking about pen, pencil on paper. There is something about writing down what is going on. That, that actually is healing. We find that there's a separation, that you've got a little bit of distance from what you're feeling. And instead of just owning it and holding it, there's a, there's a release. There is a relief that happens. So that's the, the journaling piece. Now, in terms of, you know, the, the whole section on getting to know yourself, I think there is nothing like the platform of grief that fosters uh, the understanding of self-discovery. because And if you are, as you said, an introvert or an extrovert or an ambivert, which is actually a little bit of both, and there are people who are actually a little bit of both, then how you heal or the kind of help you may need is going to be different. An introvert is going to want to do a group, is probably going to want to go into individual therapy, is going to talk to all of her people, whereas an extrovert, and, and did I say introvert or extrovert? 
I think I said extrovert. So an extrovert will do just that. An extrovert will go and talk to, to all their people, will find a group, will get external help. An introvert, the way they they tend to the tender things within them that hurt, and the way they gather themselves is actually, it's a, it's a little bit of a loner, alone journey. So they're not going to go to a group. They may speak to one friend or two friends. They may divulge what's going on with them to someone they trust. It could be a physician. It could be a social worker. It could be somebody within their church or synagogue or mosque, you know. So, so what I'm saying is that, that getting to know who you are, you know, really helps you understand the best kind of help for you as you move through this. Is it possible to do this alone? Is it possible? Anything is possible. You know, there's one thing that you mentioned is a little bit off track here, but it was something that hit home for me. And it was the idea of healing at your own pace. And it does plug into the introvert and the extrovert. But when my brother took his own life, for example, I had people tapping me on the shoulder and saying, oh, you know, you'll get through this. Or when they would talk to me, say, a year later, oh, it's been a year, like, of course you're through this. And I wonder what kinds of experiences you've had either with yourself or with your clients in terms of this pressure to somehow resolve loss or trauma at somebody else's pace. Mm -hmm. So I love this question because so often, too often, people are people pleasers and they want to, they want to do it so they can like kind of fit in. They want to perform in a certain way so they can fit in. The reality is, is that grief is going to do its own thing in its own way. It's nonlinear and for myself and for my clients and for whomever I speak to, this is your pace. You've got to take your time. And again, it is not something that you get over. You're not going to get over the loss of your brother. You're not going to get over that. You're going to learn to perhaps take his loss and use it to be here today and talk about it and remember him and hold his memory. And that's what, that's what I, I, I so support is that we find healthy ways to remember and that we teach, we become teachers. We, and it's hard to imagine that we become teachers, but it is so important. We need to teach the people we love what we need. And you talked just a little bit ago about the um, role that the brain plays in all of this. Can you elaborate, please? The brain is one of our greatest allies in this process because it is those neural pathways in our brains that the scientists at one point thought, you know, after you reach a certain age, that's it. They're, they're, they're set. But what science has taught us, brain science, neurology, just it's just unbelievable that actually in those trauma centers and in all of our neural pathways, we have an opportunity to change the way 
they they exist within our brains and our amygdala is a place in our brain it's for pleasure but it's also for trauma and the amygdala when we're in grief is saying fire 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 and all we want to do is find a way to put out the fire and sometimes the unhealthy ways that 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 gets done is through drinking or through drugs or through too much of something sleep or food and the idea here is if we can calm ourselves by knowing we're an extrovert or an introvert or an ambivert or knowing if we're hyper emotional or not emotional at all that these are ways to help us understand that we can have conversations with the self and that's what the tools do in the book it's like these conversations these questions that i that i put before the reader have to do with how we're we going to help you feel like your brain is not on fire. And you talk about 11 phases of grief when I think if I remember uh, Kubler-Ross, for example, is the most prominent person who detailed the phases, stages of loss. And I know she didn't have 11. Uh, she didn't have 11. And her five stages initially, when initially written uh, were stages uh, for somebody who was dying, not for somebody who was grieving. Uh-huh. Now that has shifted with some other work um, that's been done, but truly her first five stages of grief were actually the five stages that someone who was dying went through. And that made perfect sense. Interesting. I didn't realize that because that's something that's just quoted. Oh, It's you know, quoted who- over and over and over again. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't have validity. It's just that her stages, they were more linear. And, and the grief of, a, of someone who is dealing with the loss of something within themselves or the loss of, of a loved one, it's not linear. There is nothing linear about grief. It, it does its own thing. And when you try to make it fit into something that it doesn't want to fit into, it just laughs at you. So we may go through stage uh, 10. and We might go through all of the different phases and you might find, and that's the reason why I didn't call them stages. That's why I went to the phase because I see it as very like mobile and movable and and it doesn't it's not finite it's not like okay we're going here here and here next here here and here and then you're going to be at the end you're at the end stage of your life that's not what we're talking about here you you may get to that 11th phase and it's grace and and then you something else might come up and it's like oh there's that anxiety or there's that anger or there's that despair i must look at this and then you might go into like emotional armor, which I see as a go-to place, which is the first phase. And I see that as where you loop, as where you gain comfort, as where you sit, as where you go numb. And it's a place where you can collect yourself. You just described uh, movement and that it's not linear. So we're talking about a dance again. Yes, another not? dance. That's another dance. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of a support system when uh, we are experiencing loss and or trauma? Well, there's nothing more crazy making than being in your own mind with obsessive thinking and thoughts of yearning for the loved one you've lost or even perhaps the 
the part of you that you've lost because of that. Because I think that loss, it's not just the loss of the loved one, it's who you were. It's the loss of that role, which is actually one of the phases. It's called role confusion, and it's the second phase. It's like, who am I now that that person is gone? My mom is gone. My dad is gone. Does that mean I'm not a daughter anymore? You know, we we, we play with that. And so we must have community to markers who remind us that we are that daughter or we are that son, or we are that parent. And that just because they're not here, they're always going to be here in my heart. And I will always have conversations with them, not because I'm crazy, but because they're part of me. They're part of my DNA. And so the daughter I was remains the daughter within me. You know, when I was reading the 11 phases of grief, one of the words that jumped out at me was guilt. Uh, because from a personal experience going through whichever phase that is, and I don't recall, guilt was something that I didn't really expect. And yet it became, I wouldn't say important to me, it became an, an overriding emotional reaction to the loss of my brother. And I wonder what you have to say about guilt. So when speaking about guilt, we also speak about shame, and usually the two go together. And shame is about how you feel about yourself, and guilt is about something you feel you've done or haven't done. Or haven't done, which is what I think, or have done, exactly. Have or haven't done. So it's about something outside of yourself, whereas shame is about the way you feel about yourself. And so guilt is can eat you up, so can shame, right? And are there answers to guilt? There aren't answers. And yet, I think that the answers, if there are any answers, the questions are about, if I could have done more, what could I have done? And the thing is, is that if someone like someone who really wants to suicide, wants to do it, it is in their mind to do it. And so often we might want to believe we could have stopped them. But I don't know that when someone finally makes up their mind because they can't be in their, in their own minds or in their own bodies any longer, that they just want the pain to end. I wish this conversation couldn't end either, but unfortunately it does. So first of all, I want to remind listeners that Edie's book is It's Grief, The Dance of Self-Discovery Through Trauma and Loss. And Edie, if people would like to reach you or find out more about you, what's the best way to do that? Just go to my website, which is ednathan.com. And my name is spelled E-D-Y-N-A-T-H-A-N.com. And uh, that is the best way. And if you sign up for, you know, more information, please tell everybody, I heard you speak with Jane and I will send you a special gift. Oh, do I get a gift as well? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's a meditation. 
Oh, fine, fine. I am a meditator from time to time, not as regularly as I'd like to be. This has been a pleasure. I am so sorry that we have to cut it off at this point. And uh, I know people were going, oh, she's a, a sex therapist. So as I said at the beginning, perhaps that is a topic that would be of interest even to us older women. <laughs> well, especially for all women. And I actually have another book coming out probably the end of 2023, and it is called Sexual Grief. Oh, sexual grief. Okay. I'll have to ponder that a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Older Women and Friends. And speaking of friends, please tell yours. And if you're interested in reaching me with comments or suggestions, you can do that by emailing me at olderwomenandfriendspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can check out my blog at 70andme.com, and that's 70, the letter N, me, 70andme.com. Until next time.